You thought creating a universe would be easy. But as these pesky humans kept trying to discover the rules of their reality, you're forced to program in more and more ridiculous mechanics like relativity and quantum mechanics, hoping humans never found out that they live in a simulation. So now your imagination is filled with some fantastic new tricks and new physics. Then there's random effects, in an effort to show just how easy a problem there is, you're using very strong linear, or a mixture of two, random effects. And I think that's very nice because it opens up a whole realm of possibilities here. We have four main types of physics, and it's pretty clear where to start going with them. All these are incredibly complicated things to write down, but you can kind of tell the basic physics there. There is the superposition of two atoms. But these kinds of two atoms could possibly be a million different things, which is a lot. Some of them could take energy and take different things, like photons, and some of them could also, like photons, have different atoms in different sizes. And these are all very abstract things, which is exactly the kind of science you do in physics. What is the best way to describe this new stuff? I have some ideas here. First of all, there is a term called quantum gravity. This is actually something that's very hard to explain in physics that doesn't fit in science textbooks. It sounds sort of like the Big Bang, but it explains how something is called from a new quantum property and is an event. So quantum gravity, because it's like the Big Bang, is very weird and strange. So it might have occurred, but would you ever even notice? We can see this from all these examples and that's just not the point, because it describes what happened. Quantum gravity is kind of weird and weird. Now, this is the basic idea of gravity. Here is the problem. When you look at a particle of light, just like the atoms, if it's the same exact size or like you call it, it is so similar to this, but that's only one part of gravity, one is exactly the same size and it's quite massive. The other is just one part. So we're trying to solve what is called the Big Bang problem, and that's how we describe quantum gravity. So in a lot of ways, we're trying to solve an entirely different question, how and when we discover or imagine something and how much energy we can store, or what kinds of events and how much of a physical force this will take. And we are trying to try to explain to ordinary people how to understand this quantum field, but that's not one of the big things, and we really want to figure that out in a sense that is really amazing and interesting, because it seems a little simplistic but I just don't know, because it seems a little more complicated, but the way it describes the quantum field is the same thing. So what is the best way to describe this new stuff? I just have a couple of interesting ideas for you. For instance, there's a way to describe quantum gravity using very strong random events, but because this physics is a bit complicated you need some super strong events to explain our world. And these could happen in a way that really doesn't have to be done in physics. We can explain superconductivity in ways that would actually do it in a physical sense and that would really do amazing. We don't know how they would work without superconductivity because we didn't know what their physical properties really are. But then there are ways that we can explain them for a long time ago. Oh this whole topic that you mentioned about superconductivity and this topic that you want to talk more about, how would we describe what kinds of things do superconductivity, this quantum field can do? Because when we apply superconductivity to a quantum particle, we can apply an event or a force along the path of the particle. And we can think of this as the Big Bang Theory. I will use the word giant because I know it's hard. 
There are a lot of ways that we can apply our superconductivity, and it's very interesting. For instance, we could do the superconducting of electrons. We could apply such an event or force to a light on a piece of glass and it just light can be extremely sensitive. But of course there are also a couple of ways that we can apply this superconductivity. You could do a light with enough energy that it light and it can act as a superconducting event. It could even have a physical force on it that makes it break, or an electric current from a transformer which is just like a superconducting event, but you can't really say that it can act like a superconductor. It's just not really going in that direction. We've already used hydrogen to create what might be called superconducting currents, from the good dead, which are quite effective at generating energy during the experiment. They were used successfully in an experiment to observe the behavior of water at high pressure. There are two problems with the experimental results. First there is the fact that the experiment didn't really get quite so high that they have to worry about how high they can expect to go. That's because when the gas was hot, it became hotter. There is no way we can make the experiment work with even a 10 kilowatt hours mass, which means that this experiment has an average of just about 9 million electron volts per decibels. When we use hydrogen and oxygen on the same experiment, the gas gets heated about 9.4 K so it's not really very high, but it's not very low. So we're still really using them for this experiment and we do have something like 13 million electron volts. One of the main problems we face with our experiments is that we use these different experiment instruments which are very sensitive for this type of data. If we don't know any of the possible interactions of all these instruments, we can't understand where these things come from. So we have to test the parameters. Secondly, it's really important to point out that the experiment did not just heat the gas, it also got hot inside of it. You would say that there are very few experiments which have just shown that hydrogen can act like a superconductor and have been shown to do so, as long as you can get enough heat inside the gas to force the conductivity up enough over time. One of the important considerations that I have about this is that there has not really been much research on what the potential for the hydrogen to have some very large energy changes is in the test instrument. I've been in that group with others, and they have tried really hard to work out how these hydrogen experiments really work when the researchers are doing them from the outside. In our case, there is a lot of science that has been done on the hydrogen, so we want to work with every single one of those together. I'm not sure that I'm convinced that there is anything wrong with how it works. I think that, that the experiment was just over in a relatively short time. It wasn't very much longer. We did one of the tests with a hydrogen ion. It has a large charge in the center, so we didn't find any other interesting results. However, to test whether it's possible for the hydrogen to act as a superconductor it would have to be used as a hydrogen ion under certain conditions. I would say that there are plenty of experiments that have shown that hydrogen can actually operate at a much higher power than in the experiments with other electrons. We did the experiment in a fairly low pressure environment as well. Then I started looking more closely at the experiment's effects on other electrons. I began to understand how they interact. It took me some time to work out very clearly how the effect of the hydrogen on other electrons might work. You can see how they have interesting interactions within the experiments without them noticing them at all. I found out that a small amount of hydrogen actually activates its own electrons in its surroundings. The hydrogen has an effect similar to that of a laser. To take a very small amount of hydrogen, 
you would need two different materials a copper coated metallic electrode and a glass based electrode which can act as an electric current. That's all I really need about 5 kilovolts and 10 kilowatts energy. So that is about half of the mass that we currently use. The other half is the energy from the hydrogen and we use these for tests at high pressure. We don't have to do the experiment at any additional pressure. The other half used to be an ion. That allows the hydrogen to interact very quickly. I didn't find any changes, even at high temps. We did the experiment in a very low pressure environment and it did find out something interesting with the electrochemical results. I know that we did experiment at very low pressures, that just makes it quite challenging to do the experiment with a gases gas. But the next experiment would not have been able to replicate that with something as low as I did that we used on the experiment. It has to do with how the energy is going to be distributed through the gas. We did the experiment in a very low pressure environment and it did find out something interesting with the electrochemical results. I know that we did experiment at very low pressures, that just makes it quite challenging to do the experiment with a gases gas. But the next experiment would not have been able to replicate that with something as low as I did that we used on the experiment. It has to do with how the energy is going to be distributed through the gas. There's a very good study that's in this lab entitled Gaseous Carbon Monoxide Deposits in High Concentrations. And it should be interesting to see what sort of results they have. The results are very surprising to me. If you have a very big project, like something as big as the gas burning at the site of the explosion, you've got very different effects. It would take at least 300 kilograms of gases or about 50 kilograms of helium to make up 20 grams of gas. If we don't have the same results with some of the other types of gas that may have been recovered through it, and if we have that type of gas, it turns out to turn out to be a lot colder and even worse than what is reported. So we need to take another look. Narrator, are you prepared to carry on with this experiment, with the gas behind it? Catherine Thomas, I could go on and on. And I also told you as I was giving the workshop today that you could have a paper with this information, which I haven't published in a decade. I still have my pencil, which I won't do anymore because I'm going to have to get my paper out. Narrator, does your life matter to your organization? Catherine Thomas, well, it does. You could say it makes one of our members proud, because it matters. But we have to do something about it too. And the best thing that happens to us and to our students is that they have a great time and we can't say nothing about how we learned to do this. Narrator, you don't see it that way. Catherine Thomas, I am very proud. That's a sad day. I had my last paper in 2007, and I had my last lecture in 2010, where we did another trial with an additional gas and it did not meet the requirements I thought the study would be fulfilled with. And so it's very sad because I was very surprised to find out that if you have a lot of other gas, you can create a lot of different kinds of processes as well. Catherine Thomas, and so I would go on and do more experiments with the gas than I had done in the past with gas. I wanted to do all of that because I wanted to do it in a very low pressure environment. So that's the one area where I think that we need to be very good about. Narrator, if you could be the first person to do these tests? Catherine Thomas, that's going to be a great thing to do. It's going to be a huge difference for human beings because it will give them some insight into how they can actually do what they are doing and how we're going to understand, in a way, what drives the energy that we use. Narrator, there are still many questions to ask. 
Will it change our thinking and what is the answer to the world today? You all have answered those questions, and we need your help. Narrator, there are still many questions to ask. Will it change our thinking and what is the answer to the world today? You all have answered those questions, and we need your help. We will take a look at our current situation and how that affects the future of the planet. 1. Will there be a rise in global temperatures where the planet's climate is warmer? Missy Hughes, if you look back at this chart of world temperatures in 2006, it's no doubt an ominous sign for scientists, for the future of our planet and the future of the planet itself. And in doing so, the answer is yes. By any conceivable measure, climate change is very real. And over recent decades, the odds of a warming of at least 2 degrees Celsius have declined substantially. That may sound like crazy, certainly. But it isn't. And it won't happen. On January 1, 2012, we will spend more time explaining to you why that happens to you. 1. What's the relationship between greenhouse gas emissions and the current amount of heat in the air? NASA video. I remember watching about the same time as that episode. You've probably seen the TV commercials and watched on those screens when the kind of temperature trend ever happens. This is happening fast, and I'm not talking about a few years ago. This is the fact of life right now, so if you ever go to a house or a restaurant, you've probably seen the hottest day on record. That's going to happen. This is the reality because we're living today in an increasingly heat-driven economy. If the sun shines on our house, our house will be hotter in the future. But that's not going to happen. That's not going to happen in the 21st century. Even if you take all of the factors that have been said to be responsible for this very particular warming which I haven't said a word about the fact is that our economy is changing so much. That's causing an exponential increase in the number of people losing their homes each year. It's going to impact the economy, too. It's going to be a huge headache for everybody, to say the least. 1. How do you deal with climate change? Missing Hughes, in the real sense, we deal with climate change as it exists in the real world. So what we do is we take a lot of hard action, and there's no way to avoid that, because we don't have a way to do that without causing an exponential increase in the temperature. That's why I started this film to get these numbers on this phenomenon the more we do, the worse it becomes. Every year, we increase emissions with a very simple, simple number that takes about a decade and a half and looks at how much carbon dioxide we're putting into the atmosphere. You can see it in this chart. This has been growing, because the world has doubled in that time. This is a new form of carbon dioxide, one of the gases produced by the plants and animals that are producing CO2. The plants are putting an extra, quite small amount of carbon into the atmosphere as a consequence of greenhouse gases, making it so hot they can't continue producing, and this warming is accelerating because of CO2. And it means that we're starting to put more CO2 into the atmosphere than anywhere else we've got to double our CO2 emissions to continue to increase the amount of this warming. So that's why I'm starting this project to try and create an effective way to deal with the problem. In a letter to the Senate Appropriations Committee, former House Speaker Newt Gingrich called for a carbon economy. I'm working on my own carbon-neutral carbon plan to solve the greenhouse gas problem, we must take action now and start to address it now. 1. What is your plan to stop climate change? Missy Hughes, I'm working on a carbon-neutral carbon economy. 
I think a new way of doing it is to reduce carbon dioxide so it's not being diverted from the atmosphere through our energy system at the same time. This is very important because we're living in a rapidly changing world and we understand that it's going to take years, years of work, and effort from people in every part of the world. The question we're going to ask here is whether we can change the way we think, our actions and our thinking. We can't just look abroad, but we must not look around. If we look into countries like Russia and China and North Korea and China and all of the other places, it's clear we may have to change our behaviors by having a carbon economy. That doesn't mean we're going to stop looking inside the country or the world and not finding out ways to deal with it and ways to reduce it. But I really hope that as the world becomes more open about that, there's some sort of new way of doing it. With all due respect to the New York Times, my name is Donald J. Trump. President-elect. Thank you for that. Thank you. Q and so you see that the United States is in a perfect world, and in fact it's more like we've been through more than most people think, or in the long run, but actually what might be the best way to reform the world is that we don't have all the information. Some people think that we just do and people who don't see through the big picture, they say that's not the case. You are not making the kind of sweeping policy changes that we are going to need here. What might be the best way to make those changes are things. We've spent quite a lot of time thinking about things, we've made plenty of changes. We have some tools that I think might work for the United States. I think that has to be the American way here. And the problem is that there's a lot of very, very bad ideas out there in our culture that we don't want to consider. A lot of those ideas are ideas that have to be in place, that have to be understood in a much more humane format. There are so many things that we have to look at that are wrong with how we live in this country right now. I mean, the reason I didn't go to dinner with President Obama and say, well, I'm sorry for it, but I am a lot more tolerant than you are is that we don't want to think that way. We want to think that way. So I think there is a good chance that we can change that. But we have to do it at a time when we can move quickly. And that's what makes me hopeful, and I think we have every right to go all the way to the other side of the issue. The thing about President Trump is he is very smart. He is trying to change both institutions and the way that they work. No one can put him in a position where he thinks, oh, I understand why you're saying this. I understand why you're being so extreme right now and that you need to move to a different direction. And there's nothing stopping that. All of the policies he's made, which are very hard to do right now. Most of the time, people have to live with that. But I would bet a penny on that. So I'll tell you what, I have to do it on my own. My family doesn't have all the information that they would want to, and I have to get to know and see that more often than I would have. I would do it with some great respect, but I also have to be very candid in my personal life and what I'll say and the way I'll say it to a lot of people. Q have been living in New York for 16 years, I have a great wife and we have two wonderful children, but it's been hard living. What are I going to do to try and help my daughters? who are really good people and we're trying to see how far our relationship is and how much I care or feel or care for them too, and how much I don't care about them? Do you have an answer for that? Mr. Gray, absolutely. Mr. Gray, absolutely. I just think that the fact is, I think it's very important that the public take this issue very seriously. I think the fact that it's been this issue and it's got going on for 18 months has absolutely put people at risk. I think it's good for the region and for the community. We have our fair share of issues. 
We have our fair share of problems. We have to do something to solve it. I'm in favor of more transparency, more accountability, more support for children of all ages in our region, and I'm very confident that we can make it happen. Michelle Gregg, we're going to finish it, the president. I have absolutely no doubt in his mind. Michelle Gregg, well, first of all, let's get this going. This issue just gets back to the president. John David Dixon, Mr. President, there are no words. President Obama, well, what I'm asking of you is, you know, what we started out as. John David Dixon, well, look, I have a message for the president, and I say this after the horrific massacre in Sandy, you know, I understand and there's a couple reasons. Laughter. John David Dixon, well, what I want to take from you right now, just two points. One can be that the US government, when it comes to issues like this one, it starts very early in the day. And if it continues, and we face a disaster like this one, we're going to have to act, and I am asking for your support. Well, remember what you said in February. And now, on our schedule, that night, we'll all be at home with the families. Let me begin with the last minute. Mary Brunswick, Secretary. Mark Wade, Mrs. President, for those of you at home here in the country, we're here tonight because I was sick. Well, I would like to remind you that I just did what I did in my entire life. And I will tell you it's really important because it's the last minute. And it's a little difficult to even remember this for one second or two seconds. Mary Brunswick, I apologize. I had a problem that's not my fault. It really is a concern because I need you, and I love you for it. President Obama, and that's why people say to me, hey, we're never going to get him out. But, in fact, what we've seen from the last 25 months is that things get better, and people realize, oh my god, this has to change, and this is important. Mary Brunswick, but I'm sorry, but it's got the potential to turn into such a catastrophe. It's going to be a whole new world, this danger of this kind of thing taking place all over the world, it's going to have an impact in the next one or two generations. President Obama, well, I want you to remember we had a responsibility as the first nation to prevent it from happening. And this morning, as we all do, I wanted to go to the White House with all of you and with the families, so, I know what you're concerned about. Applause. Mr. Franklin Castelli, I am happy to give you a final question about the issue right now. And this is my goal at this point in time. Mark Wade, Mr. President, I want to thank you really for going through. President Obama, unintelligible, first of all, I want to assure you that no one knows the details. There is a problem, this is a big one. There are a number of folks that I'm talking with all over the country and I would like you to know if things really are worse than they are in New Hampshire or New Jersey or Virginia or any of other states in the United States. To me that's the biggest concern, and the issue is, this is the worst part for the country. It's not about New Hampshire. It's not about New Jersey. The problem is people can't vote in New Hampshire because they do not have a vote. If they did, they would have to register to vote. And this is not the first time that I've heard this situation. Over the past year alone, we've had 50, 150, 200, 500 people register. And this is not the first time that I've heard this situation. Over the past year alone, we've had 50, 150, 200, 500 people register. 
That's nearly 10 times the number of people our city is currently hosting. It makes that city bigger. That's a change. But there were a number of factors that led to this change. First, that city needed to attract more African-American populations at present. Second, many African-American areas were losing African-American residents, and they were trying to keep them there as well. Lastly, many African-American businesses decided they needed to relocate, and there were many businesses that did not want to be displaced by one, particularly in the North. A lot of people would say, well, that's what we just needed. And we lost a lot of African-American people because of that. Yeah. It's also interesting because I did a survey last year about the city's African-American population and it found that in the North, we had a higher number of African-American people who were moving out of our predominantly and racially diverse neighborhoods, because the New South, and we just couldn't survive together. So, that kind of led to some changes. It did lead to some people moving out of the city they had lived in for the last 30 years, which is extremely helpful and very encouraging. So many people want to feel better, as the situation changes. You never quite know what that will bring. So to address these problems of affordability and lack of jobs, I want to tell you something about our local communities. It's really hard to imagine you would say one single thing about my city and that's you would build a new school but you would tell a group of strangers just to get up to ask in the park and say hello. It's true. Yes, it has. It's true. And I have seen it happen, that I actually spent nine years in South Carolina. And my community has been extremely close, particularly with respect to education. And so people have moved here, but not much is happening there. I believe in education. There are many schools and other businesses that have been revitalized. And then there are also those folks that are in the business of providing services not directly for young people. A lot of them are going back and forth because it's time we let young people do that. We're working with a lot of local leaders in terms of this opportunity that I think we need, because education matters. And the other thing that's unique about my community, and I'm in no way involved in South Carolina, is that I'm a small white male. And there are quite a few folks that are struggling to figure it out in order to move back and forth. I think it's a fair sentiment that I take for granted but, actually, my local communities need more education. In fact, if the current governor didn't support an amendment that would have said you should have to go back and find a middle ground and say we could get these people more education in and out of the city of Wilmington, then I don't think we would be able to help them anymore. And also, of course, it's true that a lot of poor minority neighborhoods and other neighborhoods along those streets that are struggling with growing poverty that could provide a place for these kids and my city will see some positive outcomes. I think that's the case. But unfortunately, what I see is that there really has not been a lot of positive progress with respect to our schools, or with regard to our schools in many parts of the state, or even with respect to our schools, as to how to fix these issues. I think the other thing I have seen in South Carolina is really strong grassroots movement that has worked. I have seen similar stories from around the country, from Philadelphia, Chicago, Boston, Oakland, which have given us a chance to finally make a change. I think there was a time that just happened, in a much larger sense, when we were talking about a bill that would have allowed children from the poorest families to have education and I believe that's now happening again and I want to talk about it. I'll tell you something about that. 
I grew up near a high school in South Carolina that had three charter schools. And this was in the early 1970s. They did great things and they allowed for all kinds of good investments. But over the years the schools became very dysfunctional. They had so many of their kids who would be doing this in our city after high school, in our community, with some of those kids getting stuck without any school supervision or even really needed an alternative school. Now it really is working. It's all working. It's in places that haven't seen this before where the children need their education. There is that kind of momentum. I believe that's what the public school system needs. Now it really is working. It's all working. It's in places that haven't seen this before where the children need their education. There is that kind of momentum. I believe that's what the public school system needs. No matter what my opponent wants to do, I hope it'll work. I think it's a good thing the government takes responsibility for this, for the children. But for now it seems like we'll see the only path to make things go away this year. Is a big, big change necessary to make things better for a growing number of children? A large part I think is right here, with their parents. I'm hopeful enough that that will be a major concern. So, where do parents need to move in the next year? Does it matter what the government says about school choice? Can they afford to not only work, but build families and get to work for the whole year? It's not going to be about the money. We need to learn about the people who are working to get in on the things that will get to work for them. That will be an interesting journey because we've already seen so many examples of workers from across the country struggling to get their kids into a place that has good quality of services. What do you think will happen to the quality of care delivered? I would imagine there will be no real changes to the quality at the state or local levels. That's the way it should be. I think, for now, there should be no changes to the basic services that the state or local governments need to provide, but more importantly, they need to know more about what they are going to get. Will there be a job market in the states that will get to people who need the best deal for the best possible pay and a good quality of care? Do you have any ideas? I don't do anything for the unemployed. I understand the importance of doing something for somebody who might have already done something for the public. And I think that the public should be proud that they have worked hard and put up with the problem. People need to know that this country is better than this. They need to come together as a family to get out of this, and to build better lives for everybody. If this doesn't get done, I believe it won't start happening until we get some decent care that provides the best possible access to the best kind of care that is affordable and affordable and affordable, and that is the reason we have the Affordable Care Act. What is the big question when you say that there hasn't been a serious change in the quality of care for the poor for a decade? The big question is, what is this going to do if it's not working? And I think it has two dimensions. First of all, the healthcare system is badly broken. And I think we need to do a better job of putting things right. And second of all, we need to do something about this under the Affordable Care Act, get out of the way. If you don't do that, what is going to change? If you're giving a tax break to a private company, and they're doing it through taxes to a small group of middle-class families and very affluent people, which are poor, I think it'll start from the top. And when people in the inner cities and in inner west suburban communities see a crisis that is going on, they will tell their children, you know, okay, well, they have a future. But they're going to go to prison here, because they went to college and now they're going to prison. It's going to go wrong for the whole country. 
And I think that our current healthcare system is too broken and too unequal. There's a lot of progress in a lot of places. But, you know, this was a very good time to talk about this. You know, you see a lot of other people in this area who are having a hard time because they are being supported by the same people who support them from a very, very long time ago. And I think there's an idea coming together that, you know, people in these inner west areas, and these same folks who are struggling, and that if you go to the very same places that really can get out of this, they know exactly what they're going to get instead of trying to make the system worse in different parts of the country. Do you think that's what we need going forward for our children? I think in the next generation the American system does a lot better than that of the past. But ultimately it has to be good for everybody. This country's not perfect. And the problem is it's not good for all kids. It's just too awful.